The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. Dale Jarrett is going to win the Daytona 500. So nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do. Wallace spins. Wallace's car goes on its nose. It went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up, and I flew over the start-finish line. The Motor Racing Network presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. Mark Martin riding an unbelievable winning streak. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll. It was 10 years or 15 probably before I realized that I had won the Southern 500. The race winner, Rusty Wallace, and the championship driver, Dale Earnhardt, each carrying flags honoring their fallen friends, Alan Kulwicki and Davey Allison. Davey and Alan Kulwicki were on everybody's mind all year long, right to the very end. And we always had those flags in our truck. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong. Welcome to part eight of MRN Presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. In the years leading up to the 93 season, Indianapolis Motor Speedway had been contemplating another major event on the hallowed grounds of the Brickyard. In June of 1992, NASCAR conducted a tire test with select cup teams. In spite of the efforts to keep the test a secret, thousands of fans showed up to watch the historic event. Team Penske driver Rusty Wallace remembers that momentous day. I wanted to be the first guy to ever drive a stock car on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I remember we went there and we lined all the cars up and Coach Les Richter was there. And I went up to Coach and I said, Coach, this is kind of important to me because of Rogers, Penske's heritage here and the victories he's had and how important Indianapolis is to him. I would sure like to be the first guy to drive on that track. And he's like, well, everybody else wants to be the first guy to drive on the track. And I said, what are you gonna do? He said, well, I think we need to look at this numerically. And I said, okay, well, there's no number one. There was no number one there that day, I don't think. So he, uh, he said, okay, I'm gonna let you be in the track first. And so Earnhardt was lined up right behind me. I know it, it, he was mad. Earnhardt wanted to be the first guy, so man, I'll never forget, we, we fired it up and I drove the Miller January Draft 2 car on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and I'm like, it's official. I'm the first stock car to ever set foot on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I was the first guy, so I mean, there might be, are there some old, old races back in the day that somebody might have done it too, but in a modern history, I got to do that. It was really cool. And I remember coming through turn one or turn two, accelerating down the back straightaway. And I get all the way down into the back straight when I hear, and I'm hearing all this noise. I'm like, what is going on? And I look up and there's Earnhardt. He's driving as hard as he could. The tires are cold. He's never been around the racetrack in his life. And he's slipping and sliding everywhere. And I said, that, and it just hit me. I said, that son of a gun wants to be the first person to lead a lap at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So I raced him through turn three and four, and he beat me to the start finish line. So. He, when it was all done, we got out of the car, and he said, okay, you might be the first car to ever set foot on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but I was the first guy to lead a lap. <laughs> so that's what happened on Indy for the tire test, and that, that kind of stands out to me, and that was a, it was a, a fun, fun day, and that was something I never thought I'd see us doing, taking the stock car to Indy and, and actually doing that. But the tire test went real well. We learned a lot, we changed a lot of stuff, and it was just a verification to see if a stock car could really could compete competitively 
on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway where it's just used to Indy cars all the time. And it proved that we could. Joining the select group to cut the first laps around the Brickyard was Hendrick Motorsports and driver Ricky Rudd. It really wasn't called a, a, a what was it called? It was called more of a tire test than it was a track test. And uh, But everybody sort of knew what, their, what why we were going to be in, at uh, Indy. And it was a real exciting time. I think it was only a handful of us that went the original first time. I want to say five, six teams maybe. And we were included in that. And I just remember it was a it was a big honor to be included in that. I mean, it was definitely something special. You could feel the electricity in the air when we went there to that test. And uh, it, it, was, it was just a fun, eventful time. Uh, all the drivers were uh, spent more time together, as, you know, just talking and talking about the racetrack. And it was uh, it was a neat experience. It was if you let it get to you, the pressure probably could have probably bothered you. But it was a really fun atmosphere when we went there to test. On April 14, 1993, NASCAR and Indianapolis Motor Speedway held a press conference to announce what everyone was expecting. IMS President Tony George. There will be a NASCAR Winston Cup stock car event here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway August 4th, 5th, 6th of August, 1994. The name of the event will be Brickyard 400, and it will be a 400-mile, 160-lap race. NASCAR President Bill France Jr. And needless to say uh, from NASCAR standpoint and the drivers and coroners and the sponsorship corporations that are involved with our NASCAR Winston Cup Series we all look forward to coming in Indianapolis in 1994. Uh, we've gotten close and still are close at Raceway Park with our Bush Grand National Series but this is a great milestone, I think, in, in the NASCAR Winston Cup and NASCAR history. We look forward to many years to come. And I know on behalf of the, when the fellows were here last summer, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm. Those of you that were here then, I think, experienced the enthusiasm which uh, uh, the drivers and the, and the crews and the, and the team owners expressed when they were here. Richard Childress Racing's Dale Earnhardt. I'm excited about coming up to Indian. Uh, I'm really happy that Tony George and Billy France got together to bring NASCAR and Winston Cup racing up here. We had a great time up here in the test uh, last year and uh, a lot of fun. And uh, we're running some pretty good laps and everything, so they go and change the racetrack on us now. So we got to do it again. But uh, we're excited about it. Been looking forward to this day for a long time, and I know we're going to have a great race. Joe Gibbs Racing's Dale Jarrett. Yeah, the, the opportunity to go there was just tremendous, and uh, I think everybody was so excited. You know, I think like myself that that we're in stock cars all our lives you know we never envisioned because we didn't have aspirations of running the indianapolis 500 so we weren't going to race it at indianapolis and you know when that opportunity came along it was just a thrill and and uh, uh you know from the first time that you went there to the last time that i raced there uh, it was just always an honor and a pleasure to to be a part of that but you can see that it was going to be uh, a huge success that that fans really were embracing this opportunity to see something besides indy cars running at the indianapolis motor speedway and they showed up with great support uh, for the test and, and for everything thereafter. Most everyone was excited about the news, but there were some reservations from both IndyCar and NASCAR drivers regarding stock cars racing at the Brickyard. Team Penske driver, Rusty Wallace. It, it was a mixed, but I, it was a mixed thought because they didn't want stock cars to come on and mess up the hollowed ground where IndyCars always run, and I can understand that. But 
Some of the real big guys really wanted it to happen bad. A.J. Foyt, A.J. really wanted us on the racetrack. Uh, and I, I wish I could think of some other names, but nobody really had a problem. I remember Kyle Petty really getting upset that NASCAR was going to Indy. And I'm thinking, why in the world is he doing that? But I didn't get involved in it. But I think he was probably the only stock car driver that that really didn't think it was right for the stock cars to go to Indy. I will say, and I was on, I went on the record when we went there, I didn't think we should be there um, because that was their place. You know, we all know the story of, of and have heard the story of Bill France going to Indy and, and all the controversy and not being able to get in. Okay, you keep Indy. That's your place. We'll take Daytona because we think it's better. Um, and I still feel that way. I still feel like Daytona is, is the place. Listen. You can pay $80 million to win the race. I don't care. It doesn't surpass the guys who have won at Daytona and what Daytona means to the history of our sport. So for me, Daytona will always be that racetrack. But um, I went on record at the time to say, you know, I don't think stock cars need to be at Indy. Um, I think this is Indy. This is for open-wheel cars. This is for, for them. And this is where it's at. I don't want them coming to Daytona um, and, and running on our track. So I don't want to be up here running on theirs. But... You know, I was that lone voice in the wilderness that nobody listened to, thank God, because here we are in 2018 and they're still running up there. But it was, the fans were incredibly accepting. And I, I, I didn't think they would be accepting, but it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, the test was a lot of fun. Mark Martin was yet another NASCAR driver skeptical about running at Indy. I didn't really feel, I felt like, I felt like it was an IndyCar track. And I didn't really know, I didn't really feel like we had any business there. And our cars didn't, weren't capable of putting on a decent show there, in my opinion. Everybody made such a big deal out of it. And I was put off by all that. And that's where my head was. After we started going racing there, they did something that made our cars race around there really good. And that's grind grinding the racetrack and they didn't do that on purpose they had to do that because one of their paving jobs wasn't s smooth enough for the indy cars so they ground it and now our cars raced around there great it put on a good show i feel like it's a great place to race it was an honor and a privilege to ever race there so i was wrong for indiana native jeff gordon the prospect of running at the brickyard brought on a sense of excitement as far as I'm concerned, that's a race that I want to win really bad, and and uh, we're going to go all out. I mean, like you know, I've said before, I mean, we, we've kind of rebuilt a, a car, and it's this is basically a brand new car with a new body, and trying some different stuff out on it just for the Indianapolis test. And I mean, it's going to help us out on other places too. But I mean, we're going all out. Have you ever driven around the track at all in any type of vehicle? Yeah, in my in my pickup truck. That's about <laughs> it. Uh, I've rode the little bus on, went on the tour a few times there. Uh, at the speedway but uh, not up to speed or anything like that so it, it's going to be it's going to be interesting it's going to be fun and and i think we're all looking forward to it nascar scheduled an open test at indianapolis motor speedway in august of 1993. rusty wallace remembers how several teams modified their cars to find speed around the massive circuit we went to indian everybody wanted to be the fastest car i remember it was going all through the newspapers and stuff back in charlotte you know, very first historic test and Rusty Wallace, first guy on the track, Earnhardt laughing, first guy to lead a lap. Uh, the speeds were 100 and whatever miles per hour. 
And then I remember I kept talking speeds because that's what IndyCars always talk speeds. And NASCAR, we might talk seconds, like a 31-second lap, you know. But there it was 195 miles per hour around the track. And so the speed was uh, something that's being advertised everywhere. So when we went back for that second test session in Indy, everybody wanted to be the fastest. And everybody started building big engines. And I remember we built a big engine. We built a big engine just to see what would happen. And, and it, it really taught me a lot about engines, too, and really about performance, too, because we built a big cubic inch engine that made a ton of torque, but not a whole much, a whole lot more power. And it was amazing how we got it to Indianapolis. I could really feel that torque really powering that car. And I was always used to hearing big horsepower numbers. If you've got a lot of horsepower, you're going to run faster, right? Well, not necessarily. The torque seems to be more important. And so we built uh, this big engine. I think it was 380 inches, cubic inch engine or something. Took it back there, and it sounded like a top fuel dragster running. But when I got there, I went, "Wait a minute! I thought I was the only one with a big engine. All these guys got big engines. They all they all cheated because there was no rules, and everybody just wanted to have the big mile per hour at the big Indianapolis test. And it was a lot of fun to go up there and see everybody monkeying around with that stuff. But so uh, we did do that. As Indy practice progressed, a mock race unfolded among some of the drivers, prompting a major crash. Brett Bodine remembers it well. You know, it was kind of a staged little event, and, and we just kind of all lined up. And I don't know, I just ended up at the back. You know, at the back of the line, I wasn't, I wasn't interested in trying to lead or anything like that. Well, we came down for this mock event. That, I don't know, it was 16 or of us on the track maybe at the time, and John jumped out to the left and he went down into turn one on the inside three wide and went in there and there was, I knew there was no way he was going to make that and he he lost it you know it, it really had a bad angle getting in the corner spun backed it in the wall and a couple other cars as you said made contact with him and yeah it was what what a way to get things our first event started or or not started I guess is the best way to say it the accident was not a proud moment for John Andretti. First, I took off at the start, and you know they're double file, and I just, you know, the minute they threw the green, sprinted out, and and I got to the, I don't know, I started about mid pack or something. There's probably 20 cars or some, a little bit more maybe, and and um, by the end of the first or second lap, I took the lead, and you know, I just thought, you know, sliding the car around the corners and all that was a lot of fun, and and I, I remember who it was, and he, he he took me, like I said, he taught me a lesson, and. He took the air off me, I spun out, going into um, sort of turn one, and a lot of guys piled up, and I'll never forget Mark Martin, who, you know, he climbs out of his car, and that's gonna be his Michigan car, and, and he's not real happy, and, and so a lot of people weren't happy with the IndyCar guy at that point, and, um, because that's basically what I was. And I don't know if I ever became really a stock car guy, but, uh, but for sure I think I fit in better later, and, and later on Mark Martin actually helped me out, so uh, I think that he, he got, finally got over it. John lost it in front of us, and uh, boy, I was put out with all that. Not that I didn't like John, but I was just put out with, with it because it was uncalled for. We were putting on a mock race, which there was no call to tear anything up, and more frustration. <laughs> I, I won races, and yet you won't see them on national news, yet I did that. And I was, that night I'm watching national news and it's on there. So 
definitely not one of my proudest moments. In spite of Andretti's misfortune, Kyle Petty recalls that many drivers valued his IndyCar experience at the Brickyard. John was the only guy that knew how to get around the place. I, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, when we went out there, and, and it's not a hard place to race, uh, to, to, it's not a hard place. The cars were different than they are now for us, obviously, but it's a technical place. You hear people talk about technical racetracks, and, 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 which means you've got to hit your mark, and if you miss your mark going in, you're going to be in the wrong place coming off. John was the only guy up there that knew that, and I think a lot of people went and talked to John you know, and, and said, hey, how do you do this? How do you get in the corner? How far can you go? What do you think? And, man, we'd stand there on the front stretch and just listen to people. Where are they letting off? How much brake are they using? What what is this? It, it was a, it was a it was not a hard place to to learn, but it was one of those places where you knew the line was very narrow. Another crash during the test session involved Ted Musgrave and Kenny Wallace. The altercation left Wallace with a broken shoulder. That was a horrible moment for me. Uh, you know, we're going to go test the brickyard. I think it's the second year, and I didn't run the first year. Uh, and we're going to practice in real. Uh, we're not going to put on a show. And uh, I get racing with Teddy Musgrave. And I literally just start passing him. And Teddy doesn't want me to pass him. And at the time, I'm not so sure how we can run this racetrack. So we go through turns three and we're coming into four. We're going, you know, we're through the short shoot, and we're coming into the last corner to the long straightaway. And, and Teddy goes through the corner on my outside. Now, at the moment, I'm thinking Teddy's going to let me go because I'm passing him, and he doesn't. And, uh, you know, the, the old saying back in those days is he was taking the air off my spoiler. And, and you know, that is a correct terminology where he wouldn't let the, you know, he, he was making life miserable for me, not his fault. But I started spinning as I was exiting turn four, you know, at 180 mile an hour. You know, it's a very, you know, Indy is a very fast racetrack. So I start spinning out. And when I start spinning, uh, I back the car into the entrance of pit road. And it was a vicious wreck. What had happened when I hit the right rear trailing arm uh, took a major impact and shoved up under my seat, and uh, I cracked my scapula. With the Indy test in the rearview mirror, teams went back to work, preparing for the next race on the 93 schedule, Bristol. Good evening, everyone, from the Bristol International Raceway. Well, it's certainly not the 4th of July, but the record crowd that has come here tonight to Bristol, Tennessee, very likely to see a lot of fireworks before the Bud 500 is over. It's the fastest half-mile track on the Winston Cup circuit. It demands everything from both car and driver. Mark Martin entered the weekend as the hottest driver on the circuit, winning the last two events at Watkins Glen and Michigan, and claiming the Bristol pole for the Bud 500. But of late, he has owned everything that the Winston Cup Series is thrown at him. Short track, super speedways, road courses alike. He's on the bush pole today with a qualifying mark of 121.405 miles an hour. With Mark Martin is Jim Phillips of nearby Newport, Tennessee. Well, Mark Martin, your fourth bush pole of the year. A new event record here at Bristol, 121.405, and you were fast right off the truck. Yeah, uh, you know, everything's really working well for us, and uh, 
Heck, uh, it's an awful lot of fun to go racing right now with this Valvoline team. Things seem to just be going right for us everywhere we turn. Just as it was in the previous two races, Martin would experience trouble before the checkers flew. Problems for Mark Martin. This will be a stop for Mark at lap 128, unscheduled because he and all the other leaders were in at lap number 85. We told you that Martin led early, then backed up, and Dick Brooks, he's in for service from Steve Meal and the crew. Can't remember if this was a particular time when we blistered a tire, or if we had a loose wheel, or if I made a bad call. I have pitted before, uh, and them tell me nothing was wrong. You know, so I, I don't recall which which it was. I'm thinking though that it was a flat. I thought we had a flat tire, but whatever it was, we, we came and got tires. Uh, and whatever it was, I, it was legitimate because I didn't feel bad about it. And once again, you know, I had to I had to fight back. For Bill Davis Racing's Bobby Labonte, the grueling event ended early as the rookie driver fell ill inside the race car. Well, Bobby Labonte just got out of his car. He's, he's ill about something. It doesn't seem to be, I mean, it doesn't seem to be anything wrong. What's happened, Bobby? Well, I knocked the damn fresh pedal in earlier, and it got me all the fumes got inside the car. I just hate it because it was a pretty good car. Dick, I'm going to want to finish this race. Oh, well, I mean, I just hate it for the guys more than anything. You feel okay though now? Yeah, I just, I lost my ball bearings there for a while and spun out. Right now, it's better to get somebody in it that's got thinking pretty straight, because I'm not. You know, knowing what I know now, I probably wish I wouldn't have, because I thought, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be, um, <laughs> I was kind of a wussy back then, evidently, you know what I mean? It was like, why didn't get out? I mean, my, my God, it wasn't that big a deal, but it was at the time, evidently, because I must have, you know, wanted to get out, because I didn't think it was right for me to be in there, but yeah, I do remember getting out, because we had crush panels, and you know, obviously back in the day, you didn't have air-conditioned helmets. You didn't have fresh air coming through your through your helmet. So if you had a crush panel go out, it usually hits you pretty fast. Near the end of the 500-lap contest, Martin had battled back from two laps down to lead runner-up Rusty Wallace with just a few laps to go. But traffic became a factor as Jeff Bodine, running on the tail end of the lead lap, filled Martin's front window. Jeff Bodine, remember, is on the lead lap, so he's not obligated to get out of anybody's way right here. He's battling to stay ahead of the race leaders. Mark Martin peeks down to the inside, and Jeff can't make the move there. Twice it on the outside, and Jeff takes it wide up to the outside retaining wall. So again, Martin's going to have to follow him for a while. Well, you know, I just really wanted to win real, real bad. And if lack traffic didn't play a, a role in it, I was going to win the race. Jeff was being Jeff, which was going to be a, an obstruction, and a, it, it, he was standing in the way. Uh, Rusty, you don't beat Rusty Wallace at Bristol. You understand that? You don't beat him at Bristol in this era. It don't happen, and we're about to do it. Except somebody is is fixing to step in the way of that. That would bother anybody. You know, I mean, it, it, yeah, I was pissed. Uh, I was pissed because if I was him, I, it was at the end of the race. It don't matter. It's not going to cost nothing. Cost you nothing. You know, it does. There's no, of no consequence. I was always a very courteous, thoughtful driver and tried to do what I wanted. Uh, tried to race people the way I wanted to be raced. I always raced really hard, but really fair. And 
this was, an, this was a time when I wasn't getting what I give. Mark comes across the line, takes the white flag. Rusty tries to get outside going into the corner. Now takes a look to the inside. They're down the back stretch. Rusty peeks to the inside of the Valvoline Ford. This will be the last chance, but Mark Martin slams the door. Here goes Rusty to the outside lane in three. Now he cuts to the inside. Mark Martin's going to keep him covered. Rusty gave it every shot, but Martin wins. The flash bulbs begin to pop wildly here as Martin holds off Rusty Wallace. Mark. You guys, you guys are on a roll. Sit down on the hood. Yeah. We're lucky tonight. Uh, we just pulled it off, I tell you. The good Lord was with us. Uh, we missed all the wrecks and managed to stay ahead of Rusty, even though Jeff was holding us up there at the end. So I guess we were lucky. The win was Martin's third in a row and his first at Bristol Motor Speedway. Darlington Raceway was the next stop on the tour for the Mountain Dew Southern 500. In the week leading up to the race, Robert Yates Racing announced that Ernie Irvin would take over the wheel of the number 28 car for the late Davey Allison. Ford Motor Company and Robert, they called me late that night and wanted to know if I'd be interested in driving that car. And I said, well, I mean, I can't because I've got a contract. If I didn't have a contract, I would be more than happy about driving that car. I'd love to. And, and, and they knew that there was some situation that I wasn't happy because of the pit stops and, and things like that. You know, I wasn't, wasn't this happy because we, we didn't run bad, we run good. Um, and so it was, it was a situation that I felt like for my career to be able to better myself, I needed to make a move um, because I had been with them, you know, basically my career as far as when I could win races. Um, and I just felt like that, and, and again, I didn't know, but I, I felt like that it's like, if I can do that, then it would be really good. And I told them, I said, I have a contract. They said, well, if you can get out of your contract, would you like to drive the car? I said, oh, most definitely. Well, so it was mysteriously, I got out of my contract. So I don't know any of the situation as far as I mean, I, I think somebody paid somebody money, but I'm not sure. Yates crew chief, Larry McReynolds. Well, you know, after Talladega, we tried to figure out where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do. And we knew no matter who we got, that, that they were not gonna replace Davey Allison. That it would be the new driver for the 28 car. But I think in our minds and in our hearts that nobody was going to or could replace Davey Allison, not to us professionally or personally. And Lake Speed drove the car for a number of races, and, and Lake did a really nice job. And I think Lake, with his faith and his personality and his character, he, he, he was perfect to do what we were trying to do. Uh, and that was get us through. I think we were to a point where we just wanted to get through 1993. We, we have to keep going. We have a sponsor. We have a team. People make their living. We have to keep going, but it's like the end of the 93 season couldn't come quick enough. So Lake did a nice job for us. We ran a number of races. I think we ran Bristol. We ran Michigan. Uh, and we went and tested Darlington. And this is when things started coming together with Ernie Irvin. Uh, I think Ford was on a mission that 
we got to have somebody in this 28 car that can go kick that three car's tail and kick Dale Earnhardt's tail. That's our goal. And we knew we had that with Davey Allison. Ford knew they had it, but but Davey was gone. Alan Kowicki was gone. And I think as much as anybody, maybe even more so at that point, more so than myself, more so than Robert, they were on the biggest mission. So one of the Ford officials, I think it was Lee Morris at that point, he just had casually saw Ernie in a garage area somewhere. And I think it, the rumors were out there that, that Morgan McClure and Ernie were not on the same page, that there was a little bit of friction for whatever reason. And Ernie and I never really had a conversation about it after, so I never asked and he never offered. So I think Lee Morris kind of knew this, so he just had casually and passing Ernie in a garage area somewhere the month of August. Uh, you know, how's things going? Got plans for next year, what have you? And he, you know, that 28 car is open. Well, I think it sparked an interest. And then conversations started coming together. And so anyhow, right before the Darlington race, even though we had been down there and tested with, with Lake, they struck the deal with Ernie. But there was a little bit of a hiccup. Ernie still was not out of his contract with the four car Morgan McClure. We're, we're, we're going to Darlington. We got Ernie Irvin's seat in the car, but until he is officially out of that contract, he can't even turn a practice lap in that car. And it was the morning of the first day of practice at Darlington when finally everything got signed and everything got worked out to get him out of that four-car contract. On Sunday morning, rain delayed the start of the Mountain Dew Southern 500 for more than three hours. When the green finally flew, the contest between Mark Martin, Dale Earnhardt, and Ernie Irvin was hot and heavy. This time, Martin gets a great run down to the inside of Earnhardt, off the second corner and onto the back straightaway, grabs the spot. Earnhardt tries to go down to the inside. Martin tries to put the block on. Not going to be able to do it. Give Earnhardt back the lead. It was good. That was good racing. That was good times. Fans going crazy, which we wasn't doing for the fans. I mean, he wanted to be ahead of me. Bad and he was going to take every advantage to get back ahead of me, even if I was faster than him. And uh, so we just uh, we just did some good racing. As the laps clicked off, Earnhardt moved the fans to their feet, executing his signature crossover move throughout the 500-mile clash. Crew chief, Andy Petrie. It, it is really kind of fun to watch because, you know, he would, he would always place himself in that position going into what's now turn one and, and, and you know, let somebody you know, slip by him and then just drive right by him through the middle of the corner. And I just love watching that stuff. And it's hard to defend against it. You know, guys, even if they were faster, they couldn't hardly defend against that movie head. For Robert Yates Racing, Ernie Irvin made an impact with a top five in his first outing with the five-year-old race team. Ernie Irvin continues to harass Dale Earnhardt, so to speak. Every now and then going into the corner, he'll stick a fender up alongside Dale just to let him know he is there. We were pitting. Uh, you know, that's back when the front stretch was what's now the back stretch. And we were pitted right about the start-finish line. And I, one time, he came down the front straightaway right behind the three car, and he had the three car's back wheels picked up off the ground. Earnhardt looked like an octopus inside that race car. I didn't say nothing to him on radio about it. Again, we got a top five finish, and after the, after the race, we were just kind of talking. I said, you... Uh, you had Earnhardt jacked up there one time. He said, did you see that? He said, I tried to time it exactly where it was in front of y'all's pits where y'all could see that. And Earnhardt's 
you know, he's he's like he's not he's not shaking his fist mad. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I mean, just you know, pumped up and having fun, and that that was, I mean, I kind of remember some of that. So, um, but you know, just being able to to drive the Texaco car, I mean, it was it was um, you know really good because our pit crew and our pit stops were like really fast. Um, Joey Knuckles was one of the pit crew, and he they were really good. With 30 laps to go, Irvin spun his Ford in the fourth corner, bringing out the third and final caution. With darkness closing in, NASCAR made the call to fly the checkers early on lap 351 of 367. NASCAR has just made the ruling that with darkness descending now rather quickly upon the speedway, it will be 10 laps to go to settle the Mountain Dew Southern 500. And I'll tell you, NASCAR gave it a heck of a shot to get the full 500 miles in. We'll come up just a few miles short. It will be the 10 lap to go signal because of the impending darkness here to settle the Southern 500. On the final restart, Martin had to survive a heated duel with Brett Bodine. Whenever there's there's laps left on the table and you're running second, you think you can do it, you know? And, and we were much better than we had been all day right at that point of the race. Not saying we were going to get by Mark because he was the dominant car at that time of the race. He was really running well, and and I believe he had just come off of a winning streak. I think he won three or four in a row, and he, you know, he was the guy to beat right at that point of the season. You know, not saying we would have had anything for him, but I would have liked to have lined up behind him, and gave it a go. It got late. I remember it got late, and and Brett Bodine had and drove the race of his life. I had my hands full with Brett uh, at the end. He had a fabulous race and did a great job. By far the dominant car all day. Mark Martin half a lap from victory lane. Now one more time to turn number three. Martin hangs the hard left turn, gets back on the throttle. He's on his way off of turn four with the checkers in sight. He has waited all day after a three-hour rain delay at 7.30 Eastern time in the evening. Mark Martin makes it four wins in a row. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll that I, I, I it never, ever, it, it was 10 years or 15 probably before I realized that I had won the Southern 500. It was just another race and you know, you were bombarded and overwhelmed by press and uh, attention and fans, everybody was going crazy. Everybody was going nuts except Andy, I think Andy mentioned Dale, don't ever piss me off again. Mark Martin became the sixth driver in the NASCAR modern era to win four straight Cup Series races. Join us next week as the leaves turn and we turn back the clock to the epic fall races of 1993. I got a name for this car. I said, what is it? Because he would always help me name the cars. We always named our cars back then. And he said, midnight. I said, midnight, why? He said, because when you cross the start finish line, I looked down at my digital watch and I watched it click from 11.59 to 12. And you went right across the line at midnight and won the race. Until then, I'm Susie Armstrong. Have a great week. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The 1993 season, 25 years later, was written and produced by Rich Culbreth. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network.